Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, make an idol in the form of anything, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, angering him, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will quickly perish from the land you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will search for the Lord your God, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you in the future, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. He will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them by oath, because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. I think Tom and Parker are a little nervous. Friday night, the, uh, some of the members of the music team came in and got some of our sound uh, squared away. And um, what that basically gives me <clears throat> is a long rope to walk around and get a little bit more animated than maybe I've been in the past. And so I think they're a little worried about how animated Dave is going to get. But um, it's all good. So that scripture reading that we just heard from Deuteronomy is very fitting because Nehemiah has this in the back of his head. We are moving now into, out of Ezra and into the book of Nehemiah. And as you remember, there are, excuse me, three key movements or or three key uh, groups of texts that we've been covering as we move through Ezra and Nehemiah. The first in Ezra was the rebuilding of the temple, okay? So Zerubbabel takes a group of people and moves them and takes them back, okay? And says, okay, we're gonna rebuild the temple. Then you have Ezra, many, many years later, coming in and taking a group of people back to set up or reestablish Mosaic Law and worship at the temple. And now we're moving into this third act, if you will, of Nehemiah taking another group of people and saying, I'm going to reestablish the walls of the city and really try and get these people to love God. What we saw in Deuteronomy from that reading was that the Israelites have this history of worshiping God, of being a holy people, and then sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly falling away. And they have to deal with that. They have sin and they have to deal with that sin. They have to deal with the consequences of their sin. They've worshiped false idols. They have rejected God. They have done despicable, detestable acts. They have sinned. And so God says, that's fine. You're now gonna have to deal with that. 
So they went through exile, they went through exodus, and now here we are again, many, many hundreds of years later, and we're in the same situation. And we now have seen what will be the third movement just in this period of the Israelites returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian conquering, and still they have this up and down relationship with God. Everything starts out really good, and then they crash again and it starts out really good, and they crash again. And so what we're gonna look at now is this third period. And I want you to think about something for a minute, is think about the fact that we are now entering what will become the end of the Old Testament period. Even though it's not the end physically in our Bible, there's lots of books after that, but from a chronological perspective, When this period ends, there's about a 400-year period of silence from God. And then we move into what we would consider the life of Christ and the new covenant. So we are ending the, the time, the period of the old covenant, the period of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and those folks and said, I am going to love you as long as you serve me, but I will never forsake you that period is ending, and we're gonna be moving into this new covenant period. But there's a period here that's gonna be 400 years of silence, and we're just starting to get to the eclipse of that crash, that the Israelites have kind of their final crash, and we end up where we're at. So before we dive in, let's spend a minute in prayer and just ask for the Holy Spirit to sit on us, for God to open our hearts and our ears, uh, that we would listen to him. Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious and merciful God. We thank you that you don't forsake us. Father, we thank you for the covenant that you have made with your people, with us. Father, we thank you for this new covenant of Jesus Christ and you sending him to die for our sins. Father, as we spend time in your word this morning, I just ask that uh, we would be attentive, that we would listen and that we would understand your character, we would understand uh, how to worship you. Father, we just thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So let's begin here in chapter one of of Nehemiah. Uh, If you haven't read the the whole book of Nehemiah yet, I would would strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, It's a it's a great book. I think it's one of the easiest books in the Bible to, to read through, and I think that's because you really see the character of Nehemiah coming to life. You just feel like you can, you can sense who he is. Um, probably the next closest, I would say, would be Psalms with David, and you can, as you read those prayers and those psalms and those songs of praise, uh, you can just really feel David's heart coming through. I think Nehemiah is very much like that. You can just feel Nehemiah. You can feel who he is. Uh, I really love it. It's a very easy read, I think 20, 30 minutes a day, and you should be able to get through it all this week. Um, But I would strongly encourage you to do that because it will make the rest of the story very much come alive. So let's start here in chapter one. And we're gonna go through just the, the, and we're gonna go through this entire chapter. There's only 11 verses, but we're gonna break it down. It'll be one verse, one verse, a couple of verses, another verse. So we're gonna start in verses one through three. So it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Halakiah, during the month of Chislev, uh, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with the men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. 
And they said to me, the remnant in the, providence, in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. There's two key things to, to take out of this first three verses. Number one, this destruction that he's describing, that the walls being torn down, the gates being burned, is not the destruction that happened from Babylon conquering them almost 200 years prior. This is really some more recent destruction. If you remember in, in Ezra chapter four, uh, the, the Israelites were trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and some of the leaders, some of the men from, from the, the region who were not Israelites uh, looked at that and said, this is a bad thing. Israel has been a rebellious nation. They have rebelled against kings. They've created lots of trouble. And so we don't think they should be doing this. So they wrote to, to King Darius and said, hey, uh, I think this is a bad thing. You shouldn't be doing this. And so the men then resorted to some violence. So that was in chapter four of Ezra. It doesn't talk a whole lot about that. And this doesn't specifically say that that was in response or that this destruction is that, but that's kind of the prevailing thought. So we've got, just from a number of years ago, some destruction. The walls, at least portions of the walls have been rebuilt. The city gate has been rebuilt. And now it's been destroyed or, or, or damaged again. So that's the first part of that. But the bigger part is in verse three, and it says, those who survived the exile are in great trouble and great disgrace. So the word trouble here is not just a feeling of, wow, I'm, I'm discouraged or I've, I've, I've got some, some issues I'm dealing with, okay? The Hebrew word is ra, and that Hebrew word is sin and wickedness. So this trouble that they're in is not simply, hey, we're just kind of not feeling it, we're, we're, we're in a spot where we're not doing so good, and I'm, I'm kind of ashamed of where I'm at. This is widespread sin and disgrace. It's only been 13 years since Ezra returned and reestablished worship at the temple. 13 years. So we're in 2022, 13 years ago would have been 2011, right? So. Think about 13 year period, it's not that long. And talk about that ark and fall of the Israelites. The ark of them was, it, the last ark was them reestablishing worship at the temple and it's only taken 13 years for them to be reported that there's great sin and wickedness amongst the people again. Already 13 years later. So this has got Nehemiah worried. He hears this and in verse four, he moves in and says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. That number of days was not just a couple of days. That number of days was four months. You're gonna see at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah says he was the cupbearer for the king. So he was a fairly prominent individual within the king's court. He had a lot of, of uh, responsibility. He had a lot of trust. He was a man of action. He would have been somebody who, when something needed to be done, he was going to get it done. He was going to make sure it happened. So I'm a type A personality. When I see that something needs to get done, boy, I hit it. What Nehemiah saw was I see a bunch of, people that are hurting, I see a bunch of people that are not doing what God has called them to do, and that burdened his heart 
such that he prayed for four months. I got to be honest, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could sit around for four months and say, God, I completely trust you. I know that, that you love your people and that you will bring them around and that you, that, that you have a plan. And I will pray nonstop, day and night. It says he prayed day and night for four months. I don't know that I could do that. I'm sure I probably could, but I know my own personality, I know my sin nature would be to say, God, let me in, put me in the game, coach, let me get in after it. I know that's what he would be wanting. I, I know that's what I would feel he would want. But I know that part of what I have to do is I have to stop and I have to wait on God. I have to say, Lord, I'm lamenting this sin. I'm lamenting the issue, the, the situation, and I want you to speak to me. Tell me what to do. Show me what to do. Show your people what to do. And that's where he's at. He's at this point where he is just beside himself. He is saying, I am so grieved. And then what we see is verse five through the end, a prayer. Now it's probably a representative prayer. He probably didn't write this and pray this specifically. Maybe he did. But it's probably a collection of the prayers that we find in in, uh, Nehemiah's memoirs as far as these are the things that he prayed day in and day out. Remember, he was praying daily, night and day. So these are the things that he's praying. So if we look at just verse five, this is a great picture of how we pray or how we can be learning how to pray. It says, I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. So Nehemiah starts out his prayer in worship. We talked a few weeks ago about the different ways that we worship. We talked a little bit about that prayer is a form of worship. Prayer is not just us going to God and having a conversation. When you think about us here in the United States, uh, when we go and ask, say, a politician for something, we say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna request something from you. We don't have a king. We have representatives that are elected by us. We have senators. We have a president. And so sometimes there's not this humbleness. There's not this servanthood. There's not this perspective of, I don't owe you anything. You owe me, okay? And so what happens is we get in this this perspective for us, it's hard for us to understand Nehemiah's response here. It's hard for us to go to God and ask something and say, but the very first thing I need to do before I ask is I need to bow my knee and worship you. I need to bow and acknowledge that you are the God of the universe. If I go to my congressman, congresswoman, senator, president, and ask for something, if I go to city council, I'm saying, you work for me. So this is what I want, this is what I need. This is not that. You don't, God doesn't work for you. You should be worshiping God. So when, the, when you look at going to God in prayer, one of the very first things you should be doing is going and saying, I'm going to praise God for his character, for his unending mercy, for his love, for his faithfulness. Once we get through that, then we can begin the rest. But until we acknowledge that God is our maker, our creator, the God of the heavens, the God of the universe, boy, you're starting off on the wrong foot if you don't start from that that perspective. 
It also helps change your mindset as you continue to pray. You're not looking at this as far as what God can do for you, but what are you uh, what, what, what can you do for God? What can I do to show you that I am your humble servant? How do I fall on my knees and say, Lord, show me what you have for me. Show me how I can be used by you for your glory. Until you submit to God in humble praise and adoration, you're gonna have a hard time praying. So that's what Nehemiah is trying to show us here. So we move into verse six. He says, let, or, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. So what he's saying there is he's actually asking God to hear or answer the prayer. He's saying, God, I want this, I'm, I acknowledge who you are and I know you are capable of doing this, I'm asking for you to hear my prayer, hear my petition. I'm asking to be in your presence. Will you allow me to make this ask of you? Again, think about this in the terms of a king. If you went into the king's chambers and just started making demands, if you just went into the king's chambers and said, hey, king, how about we get this done? You might have some issues. You might be walking to a guillotine or some other type of very, very harsh punishment. Okay? Now, God is not going to do that. He loves us, but he does sit there and say, I want your worship. I want you to love me and I want you to follow me. So this is a part of that, is us going to God and saying, God, we know who you are, we're worshiping you, and now we're going to ask, would you hum can we humbly come before you and ask for something from you? And then in the rest of verse six and then into verse seven, it says, um, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned, we have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Key component number three, confessing our sin, acknowledging that we don't deserve what we're asking for. But then acknowledging also that God is the God of grace and mercy. The thing that you see here is Nehemiah is is acknowledging or is confessing two types of sin. He's confessing the sin of the individual, him, and the sins of his family. He's recognizing that sin is a much bigger issue than just him individually. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that in, in just a few minutes, but it's important for you to understand that there's an aspect of sin that certainly is you and you have to confess and be humble and say this is the sin that I have but also recognize that you're a part of a larger group of believers and that you have responsibility for your family, you have responsibility for those around you and that some sin is so entwined into who we are that it impacts those around us and that we as a people have sin as well. So he's confessing this to God and saying God I know that I am a sinner I'm confessing this before you, and even though I am a sinner, I know that you are true and faithful, just like we heard in Deuteronomy. It says, the Israelites sinned, they did these despicable things, they were exiled, but when they turned their heart back to God, he was faithful and had favor on them. 
And that's where we're at, is confessing our sin and saying we're turning our heart back to God. We're acknowledging that we have sin in our life and God is going to be faithful when we turn back to him. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Then we move into verses eight, nine, and 10. It says, please remember what you've commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the people, peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though you are exiles and banished to the furthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where, they, uh, where I choose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. So again, he's, he's calling out and standing on the truth, on the promise that has been time and time and time again tested. The Israelites have tested God over and over and over. Not that they were doing that on, on purpose, but the fact that they sinned, the fact that they rebelled, the fact that they then turned back, the fact that God continuously had favor on them when they turned back to him was a method for us to look and say, the character of God is unchanging. The character of God is faithful. He has said he is going to do these things and he does them consistently. We can have faith, we can stand in hope and truth knowing that God does not change. And that is what Nehemiah is doing here is he's saying, God, I know the people have sinned. Remember, this is four months of this prayer. He's lamenting the fact that the Israelites are back in this place of sin, of wickedness, of not following God. They're back in this place of falling away. And he is praying and saying, God, if we, I acknowledge my sin, I acknowledge the sin of my family, if we can turn back to you, I trust and know that your faithfulness is there and I'm calling on that, I'm standing on that truth. God knows it. He's, he's not telling God anything God doesn't know. He's re, uh, reinforcing it to himself and saying, I know that this is the truth. And then we move into the final piece of, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of this prayer uh, in verse 11. And he says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servant who delight to, retrieve, to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. So again, this last piece is that final humility of saying, God, I know you don't have to answer this prayer. I know that you are the God of creation. You are the God of the universe. You are all-knowing, all-powerful, and I do not deserve this, but I am asking you to do it. And I'm asking because I can trust on the promise that you have already made, that you have been faithful year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, that you have been faithful to your people who have turned back to you. And that is what Nehemiah has been looking at here. So when we look at this, we look at this and say, this is a great example of how we can pray, how we should pray. When you think about this, it's, it's a, a wonderful reminder of how we need to approach God in worship. So remember, music is great, Teaching is great, but prayer is a big part of our worship. 
You need to have prayer as a part of your daily life. You need to have prayer as a component of what you do to worship God. And it, not, it can't be just when things are rough, when things are bad. It can't just be when you feel like there's no other chance or, or no other choice. You've got no other option. Okay. Prayer needs to be something that when you look at it, you say, this is my first and best course of action. Again, I'm a type A personality. I'm a hard charger, okay? I was an entrepreneur. I started businesses. I'm, this, is, this is what I do. I go and do things while other people sit on the sidelines and watch. I'm the first one through the door and I'm making stuff happen. But I also know that if I do any of those things on my own, they are destined to fail. They will not be successful unless I am asking God first. And foremost, lead me. Show me the way. Move me and move my heart to where you want me, to where your will is. Now, can I still, can, can he still use me in my type A personality? Absolutely. But I guarantee you there's times when he's yanking the rein on me saying, whoa, Dave, slow down, dude. Just be still. Listen to me. Focus on me. Worship me. Seek my will, not your will. So prayer is always, always, always our first and best course of action. You will always find a better success rate when you start with worshiping God, when you start with confessing your sin, when you start with asking God, what is your will, God? Where do you want this to go? How do you want to address this situation? Then if you just start running off and, and doing hard charging, it will always go better when prayer is your first course, okay? Second thing I think we can learn from this is a little bit about sin. I think the first thing we can learn is sin is personal. I don't think any of us have any notion that this isn't true, that, that there's something here that we wouldn't agree with. Sin is personal. I'm responsible for my own sin. The things that I do, I'm responsible for. I made the decision to sin against God. I made the decision to not listen, to not obey. I made that decision, it's my responsibility. I don't think any of us are shocked by this. I think this is pretty simple. Okay? But where it starts to get a little murky is how your sin impacts those around you. Because sin is not just personal, it's also pervasive. It creeps. Your sin impacts those around you. My sin has impacted my wife, it has impacted my children, it has impacted each of you. Whether you know it or not, the sin that I have in my life has impacted everyone in this room. It's impacted everybody that's a part of the, the culture that I'm a part of. And it's the same thing for you. The sin that you have in your life impacts the people that are sitting next to you. It impacts those you love. It impacts those you work with. Sin is pervasive because it doesn't stop with you. It just finds its little tentacles and its fingers and it just dives in and it pushes and it pulls and it's like, ah, over here, over here. And before we know it, boy, that sin has crept everywhere. And then the third part of this is because it's crept everywhere, sin is corporate. We as a body 
are responsible for the sin. You heard Nehemiah say, Lord, I confess my sin and the sin of my fathers, my family. A great example of this is abortion. And I know we just had the Supreme Court announcement that overturned Roe versus Wade. But do you know why we've lived under that for 50 years? I was born in 1973, just shortly after Roe versus Wade was, was ruled upon. So for 50 years, almost 50 years, we've felt this burden in this country. And we as a people own that burden. Now whether any of us have actually participated in that particular sin, doesn't matter. We've created the culture, we've permeated the culture, we've allowed that culture to continue to grow that has said that is okay. Now, have we fought against some of that? Have we prayed for it? Have we worked in, in you know, pro-pregnancy clinics? Have we uh, donated to those causes? Have we prayed? Have we written letters to senators and representatives? Voted in the right ways? Absolutely, so we've taken steps. However, the reality is, is there's a culture that has created a dislike for God's word. There's a culture that has created rebellion against God and we are a part of that. And I think each one of us at some point has probably felt some of that burden of Lord, I just, I can't believe our culture has turned so far from you. I can't believe that the people that I know, that the people that I work with, that my neighbors, that whatever, that they are so, that they're running so far away from you. So this sin is corporate, it is communal, is a part of our society and we bear some of that responsibility because we have individual sin. Because our individual sin is not only impacting you, it is impacting everyone around us. It's impacting future generations. Like I said, my sin impacts my kids. Well, that sin impacting them, at some point they may have families of their own, could impact their families. It's generational, it continues. We've seen this over and over and over in our own culture. We see it with the Israelites. So what we have to do is we have to acknowledge that and we have to say, I need for myself to turn back to God. I know for, for myself, I don't confess my sin to God probably as much as I should. I know there are times when I pray and I'm just saying, God, I just need you to help with this situation. God, you're awesome, you're great, you're merciful, but I guarantee you there are times that I pray that I omit that piece of confession of my sin and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know I don't deserve you answering this prayer, but I know that you are truthful and faithful, that you are consistent and so I know that you will, and I thank you for that. But I humbly ask you for that, knowing full well that I'm a sinner and repenting of that sin. So I think when you look then at this, the, the last piece is really then a reminder of how do we pray? I think Nehemiah's prayer here is, is, a, is a great example of this, and it's actually reinforced by Jesus in Matthew chapter six in the Lord's Prayer. It's a very similar structure, okay? So you, you praise God for his glory. You humbly ask that he's gonna listen and, and answer your prayer. You confess your sin. You stand on the promises that he's already given. 
you come back to him and say, God, help me, and I'm gonna actually make this ask. Restore me, restore the people, restore the, the relationships, restore our society, restore whatever it is. Bring us back to you. And then stand again on the promise knowing that God is going to answer that prayer. Knowing that God is faithful to those who return to him. He knows we're gonna mess up. He knows we're gonna falter. He knows our sin nature. It's not a surprise to him. He's not going, looking at us saying, well, I don't know, this is like the 18th time we've been through this like we do with our children sometimes, like my mom and dad did with me, like, okay, David, I, I was a junior, so I was always David at home. Uh, okay, David, uh, junior, Davy, whatever it was you wanted to call me. Um, we've been down this path before. Okay, God's, God's not there. He's like, yes, we've been down this path before, but I love you unconditionally. I love you, and when you return to me, I will be faithful and truthful to you. God made a covenant with his people, he made a covenant with the, with the Israelites in the Old Testament, and he said, do these things, and I will be faithful to you. Return to me after you've sinned, and I will be faithful to you. I will never forsake you, I will never leave you. I will always be here when you were ready to come back to me. He knew that we as a people would never be able to consistently stay with him, that we were constantly gonna fall away. And he created, through the new covenant, the blood of Christ, a method, a way, for us to now have a single sacrifice that covers all of our sin. He gave us the blood of Christ to wash us anew. We are white as snow in his eyes through the blood of Jesus. When he looks at us through the lens of Christ, he says, you are holy because of who Jesus is, because of that new covenant. He said, if you trust in me, if you trust in my son, if you take that sin and you lay it at his feet and you allow him to be that, sac that, 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 that whole complete sacrifice, I will love you and I will be there and I will not forsake you. And that's the beauty of where we're at. Again, this arc of we see the end coming. We, we are looking at this thousands of years later and we see this arc. We see that the Israelites are falling once again. And man, they are just going downhill, downhill and it's like watching a train wreck. You know it's coming. You can see it coming. The good thing is, is we know that that's not the end. We know that that old covenant is washed away and we have the new covenant of Jesus. We have that blood that was shed for us, he died for us, and then he was resurrected. He conquered death so that we, standing in him, could be forgiven for our sins and we could be reconciled with God once and for all, for all sin, for all man, for all mankind, for all eternity, once and for all, a holy, sufficient sacrifice. It's a beautiful story. And it's one that we look at and say, the, the Old Testament points to it, and this is exactly where we're at. This is the culmination of all of these stories in the Old Testament, all of the history, all of the ups and downs of Israelites pointing to this beautiful new covenant that we get to live under. And that's the covenant that we live under today. It's wonderful and it's beautiful. So pray with me, church, as, as we thank God for that new covenant that he's given to us. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy. We are grateful for your love in our life.
Lord, we know that we are never good enough. We know that there's no chance that we could ever escape our sin on our own. We know that there is no chance that we could ever get to a point where we would be worthy to stand in your presence. And so Lord, we are thankful for your grace, your mercy, your steadfastness. We're thankful that you've replaced the old covenant of the Old Testament with the new covenant, the covenant that you have given to us that says if we trust in you, if we give our sin to Jesus, if we accept that free gift of salvation, that you will stand with us, that we will be reunited with you. So Father, we are thankful for that. We are thankful that you are an amazing God, that you love us, that you have provided for us in this way. Father, we are just humbled and we ask that you would just use us to share this good news with others around us. We ask that you would help us to be a part of sharing your gospel uh, with the world. And so, Father, we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.